I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, and Cheryl Levitt disappeared on Sunday, June 7, 1992. When a person disappears without a trace, often the most critical information is hidden in their actions and words from the days before they vanished. The three women's last known whereabouts may hold the clues to what happened to them. Cheryl Levitt, her daughter Susie Streeter, and Susie's friend Stacy McCall mysteriously vanish just hours after attending the girls' high school graduation. Now you have three females that have just basically vanished without a trace. There's an initial shock that is overwhelming. It was just a nightmare. I've got to start trying to find her now. But this bizarre missing persons case fuels more rumors than answers. If they find remains there, then we're going to have to deal with it. I believe that the three missing women are buried close to Springfield. I am willing to be wrong. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. February 1992. It's a bitter winter in the queen city of the Ozarks, Springfield, Missouri. 42-year-old hairdresser and mother of two, Cheryl Levitt, is moving into a new home with her 19-year-old daughter, Susie Streeter. They're downsizing to a more modest home on Delmar Street after Cheryl's recent divorce. It was a small little house that had an incredible potential. And I think at the time she was going to fix it up and flip it and buy a bigger house. Cheryl is a hardworking single mom and tries to instill her work ethic in her daughter. Susie is a senior at Kickapoo High School and works at the local movie theater after school. A few months after the move, Susie begins focusing on her upcoming high school graduation. She is spending a lot of time with her friend, Stacy McCall, who she's known since childhood. You know, it was senior week and they had a lot of activities. They were, you know, going to the senior breakfast, that type of organization type thing. Susie and Stacy are feeling nostalgic and want to make the most of their last days of high school together, 
according to Stacy's mother, Janice McCall. They started focusing back on their childhood. They were realizing that not all of them were going to be going to college and that they would kind of split apart a little bit. Janelle Kirby is a friend of both Stacy and Susie in high school. The three of us didn't hang out a whole lot together. It was more I did a lot of stuff with Stacy, and I also did stuff with Susie. The three teens have big plans for their summer. We were ready for the water parks, the pools, shopping, and getting ready for college. In the fall, Janelle and Stacy McCall will attend Missouri State University. Stacy and I plan to go to college together and possibly join a sorority. Susie tells her brother she would like to follow in her mother Cheryl's footsteps and become a hairstylist. Mom and Susie were extremely close. They understood each other, they were bonded, they got each other. I believe Susie wanted to go into cosmetology because she looked up to my mom so much and she wanted to be like my mother. Kickapoo High School is planning an alcohol-free graduation party for the night of June 6th. It's called Project Graduation. They had a pledge that they had to sign that they would come without any alcohol or anything else and would be there all night long and they could not leave. They would be locked in. But the girls decide not to sign up and make their own plans. They wouldn't have been unlocked until about 8 o'clock the next morning, which would have changed things dramatically. It's graduation day in Springfield, Missouri. The girls attend the ceremony at MSU campus. Stacy and I went shopping the night before, bought all kinds of new clothes. You know, everybody was just really happy. Graduation was coming. We couldn't be happier. And I was patting myself on the back because all my daughters had made it through graduation. We didn't have any catastrophes. All of them would be in college. So we were looking forward to that. After the graduation, the three girls head out for family dinners and later meet up at Janelle's house for a party at her neighbor's. There was a series of parties that the girls were to attend that evening, and then travel to Branson, Missouri, which is approximately 30 minutes from here. The girls plan to sleep at a motel in Branson, close to Whitewater, an outdoor water park, where they will enjoy their first full day of summer vacation. It was going to be a beautiful day to just hang out on our first day graduated. Stacy's mother, Janice, is not happy about the girls' plan to sleep at a motel. Then, she hears from Stacy around 10 p.m., She's relieved to learn the girls have decided to stay at their friend Janelle's house instead. We were having fun at the party. It was getting late. We just didn't want to leave the party and drive to Branson, so we just decided to go to the water park the next day. Around the same time, Susie's mom, Cheryl, is home alone. As usual, she's busy working on a project in her house on Delmar Street. Around 9.30 to 10 o'clock p.m., Cheryl Levitt was at home refinishing a piece of furniture that was in her bedroom and was planning to go to bed that evening. After a long night of celebrating, the girls are ready to settle in for the night. But Janelle's house is packed with out-of-town relatives. They can't stay there after all. My whole family lives in Kansas, and everybody came for my graduation. So therefore, there was not a lot of room. Their plans change again. Janelle stays at her own house. But Susie and Stacy decide to go to Susie's house on Delmar Street. So they decided to leave and go to Susie's house and spend the night down there. They leave in separate cars, and agree to call Janelle in the morning when they wake up. Looking back, I wish I'd begged them to stay and, you know, not let them leave, and we just would have all slept on the floor together. It's a bright, sunny morning when Janelle wakes up, but she gets no phone call from her friends. 
It was probably like nine o'clock when I woke up. I hadn't heard from him, so I called. No one answered. Janelle calls the house many times, trying to reach her friends, Susie and Stacy, but no one answers. Mike, my boyfriend, picked me up, and so we went to Susie's house. I had never been to the house before this. They had just moved there recently. When Janelle and Mike arrive at the house on Delmar Street, it appears at first as though everyone is home. When they arrived, uh, Susie's vehicle was there, Stacy's vehicle was there, parked in the driveway, and Cheryl Levitt's car was in the carport area. So all three of the vehicles were at the residence. They approach the house, but even before they knock, they see something out of the ordinary. And when we got to the front porch, there was glass everywhere. Janelle immediately notices that the globe covering the porch light at Susie's house is shattered, but the light bulb itself is intact. Nobody answers the door, but they think perhaps they are still sleeping. She and Mike grab a broom and sweep up the mess. And so Mike just cleaned it up just to do a nice thing. We just went on in and was yelling for him and no one answered. Inside the house, everything appears normal at first. They peer into the rooms and see that Susie and her mother's beds look slept in. In the bathroom, you could tell they took their makeup off. The jewelry was sitting there. The washcloths where they used to take their makeup off was sitting there. It seems Susie and Stacy made it home from Janelle's house the previous night and got ready for bed. There was basically no indication that there was anything out of the ordinary other than maybe they just weren't there at the time. But as the minutes tick by in the empty house, Janelle can't help but sense that something just doesn't seem right. Cheryl's dog, a terrier named Cinnamon, is unusually anxious and barking. Cinnamon was very excited. She was um, running around, and she wanted me to hold her, and like something was wrong. The family dog was left unattended, which was not normal for this group. And both Susie and her mother's cigarettes and lighters, items they rarely leave behind, are on the table. My mom was a chain smoker. She went everywhere with her cigarettes. I mean, if she got out of bed and went into the living room to say something, she brought a cigarette with her. Although Janelle and Mike are puzzled, they decide to leave. They have no idea where Cheryl is, but assume Susie and Stacy have gone to the water park without them. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. There was no way to get a hold of anybody. Just then, the phone at the Delmar house rings. And when Janelle Kirby answers, she is confronted by a strange and disturbing call. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When Janelle Kirby does not hear from her friends, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall, on the morning of June 7, 1992, she drives with her boyfriend to Susie's house, where the two girls slept. They discover that no one is home. Just before leaving the house, the phone rings. Janelle Kirby was inside the residence and answered the telephone, hoping that it was someone giving information of Stacy and Susie being located. But the call isn't helpful. Quite the opposite. It was a brief call, and the person didn't identify themselves. It was a male voice that made sexual innuendos, and she hung up, and immediately received a second call with also making sexual overtones. Janelle hangs up upset by the phone calls, which she thinks are probably a prank. She and Mike leave the house on Delmar Street, not sure if something is seriously wrong or if there's a logical explanation for their friend's absence. Meanwhile, Stacy's mother Janice and older sister Lisa are happily planning a trip to the local bridal shop to pick out Lisa's wedding dress. Janice tries to reach Stacy before heading out for the day. She calls Janelle Kirby's house, where, last she heard, her daughter was spending the night. Janelle's sister answered the phone and she said, she's not here. She said at the last minute, Stacy had decided to go and spend the night with Susie. Janice is unhappy that Stacy didn't tell her about her change of plans, but there's nothing she can do for the moment. She doesn't have the new phone number for Susie's family's home on Delmar Street, so she goes to the bridal salon. She's irritated with her daughter, but believes she will see her later that day. It's now been 15 hours since anyone has seen or heard from Stacy McCall, Susie Streeter, or Susie's mom, Cheryl Levitt. But no one knows if they are actually missing. Stacy's mom, Janice, finally tracks down Susie's new phone number. When no one answers the phone, Janice drives over to Susie's house. So I started opening the door and saying, hello, hello, anybody home? Somewhat reluctantly, Janice decides to walk in and look around. 
I felt like I really shouldn't be in here, but I've got to find out where Stacy is, and things are getting stranger by the minute. Just like Janelle hours earlier, Janice notices some unusual things about the way the house was left. Her daughter's clothes from the previous night are neatly folded on the floor, but her T-shirt and underwear are missing. I noticed that the TV was all fuzzy. Stacy's purse was sitting right next to Susie's purse, and right next to that on the floor was Susie's mom, Cheryl's purse. And I thought that was kind of strange. I think that's when I started feeling this is not right. Janice is suddenly sick with worry. She calls the police to report Stacy missing. And I was just really trying to hold it together. And they said, we are going to file this as a missing persons report. It's late, so the officer asks Janice to come to the station the next morning. He makes an unsettling suggestion. And that was, can you get their dental records? And for me, if they want dental records, they're thinking they might be dead. And I think it really hit me hard that there was something really bad going on. And I thought, I've got to start trying to find her now. Janice gets pictures taken at graduation developed and sets out to do something unimaginable just 24 hours after the ceremony. She is creating a missing person poster for her daughter. With the help of the Springfield community, Janice distributes the posters statewide. Hi, uh, I'm Mrs. McCall and this is my daughter. Okay. And they're missing and we'd like to put posters in your windows, on your doors. Okay. Soon, they appear across the country dubbed by the media as the Springfield Three. By now, police have developed a timeline. Sometime between the hours of 2 a.m. when the teenagers left Janelle Kirby's house and 8 a.m. when people started calling Susie's house, something happened to the three women. To complicate things, well-meaning friends and family who went to the crime scene may have removed critical evidence. I don't think they intentionally tried to contaminate the crime scene or anything, but there was quite a few items that were moved inside the residence before the police were called, uh, mainly just searching for clues or uh, where, they, where they may have gone. During Janice's frantic search, she played Cheryl and Susie's answering machine most likely erasing a message that may have contained a clue for investigators. There was a particular um, phone call that was received that evening that the police were very interested in. There was a kind of a strange message. It was a man, and I don't remember what the message was. And somehow it got deleted. Investigators don't believe that this message had any connection to the prank phone calls received at the house by Janelle Kirby. But with the message erased, they will never know for sure the community starts flooding the police with tips. The amount of calls and the amount of tips that came in on this case was more than I'd ever seen in my entire career prior to, and really more than I've seen in my career since then. In a strange coincidence, a neighbor of the McCalls reports a stolen vehicle the same night the three went missing. The owner of the car is a classmate of Susie and Stacy's. We're requesting individuals to look for a burgundy 1987 Toyota Supra two-door. At first, I think they were putting a connection on that, but it turned out that the car was stolen from our area and not by Susie's house. When the car turns up, days later, police can find no connection to the women's disappearance. Then, 
a waitress at Cheryl and Susie's favorite restaurant, tells police she saw the three women eating between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on the night they went missing. It's a popular place, and there was quite a few people there. Everybody that we could locate and identify as being there that evening were interviewed, and we could not corroborate that any of the three people were actually at the restaurant that evening. More than 30 officers are assigned to the case. The FBI is called in, but the leads go nowhere. And all the resources were pulled, and still, it was overwhelming for the Springfield Police Department in this investigation. It became an animal of its own, and it was really consuming the whole entire city. The city is gripped by fear, and the police are perplexed by the lack of evidence. Now you have three females that have just basically vanished off the face of the earth without a trace. Cheryl Levitt, her daughter Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall have disappeared, seemingly without a trace. Police start gathering information on the three women. Nothing in any of their backgrounds suggests that they would simply run away, so they dig deeper. They start with Cheryl Levitt. She worked and was a mother and did not have relationships at the time that would have been suspicious in nature. Cheryl is a mother of two, Bart Streeter, her eldest is nine years older than Susie. She was my baby sister, and I, and I loved her. She just was sunshine. But police learn that Bart's relationship with his mother is more complicated. My mom said to me the same thing all parents say eventually, and that's if you want to live under my roof, you have to live by my rules. I didn't want to live by that rule, so I left. At age 17, Bart moves out. But the tension with his mother continues for years. According to Bart, his mother struggles in her relationships with men who often have problems with alcohol. Bart says he falls into the same pattern of behavior. She had family members who drank to excess, and she wanted me to quit, and I wasn't going to. After 10 years of living on his own, Bart returns to Springfield in the fall of 1991. I had a rough breakup with my girlfriend, and I, and I needed a new start. Bart and his little sister Susie decide to get an apartment together which gives them a chance to get to know each other again. But Bart says his drinking gets in the way. If I had not been drinking to excess, the relationship that I had with my mother and sister would have been completely different. I do regret the drinking at that time. One night at Susie and Bart's place, things spiral out of control. Susie came home late from the movie theater and she told me to turn my music down. And I told her no, I wasn't gonna turn my music down. It was Friday and I was partying. Bart Streeter and Susie had a physical altercation where she was arguing over him being under the influence of alcohol or drugs at the time. It got heated, and some stuff got thrown, and some stuff got broken, and we yelled and screamed and hollered at each other. After the fight, Susie moves back in with her mother, Cheryl. They decide they have reached their limit with Bart's behavior and cut him out of their lives. Just three months later, before any chance of reconciliation, the two most important women in Bart's life are missing. There was a message in my inbox to call the Springfield Police Department. They asked me if I had seen or heard from my mother and sister. Streeter heads down to the station and quickly understands the situation is grave. There's an initial shock that is overwhelming, and from there, it was just a nightmare. The police immediately start looking at Bart Streeter as a suspect. And looking into the background of the family and family situation, 
there was things that piqued our interest as far as wanting to talk to him further about past disagreements with Susie and his mother. Anybody that is close to the family, and especially men that are close to the family, brother, husband, boyfriend, you're initially considered a suspect. Police question him to establish his whereabouts the night his mother and sister went missing. Streeter says he was drinking that evening and passed out on his couch. When police follow up on his story, both a neighbor and a girlfriend corroborate his alibi. There was nothing I was not willing to tell them, and there was nothing, there was nothing that I didn't tell them. He was cooperative, and he did talk to the police and did cooperate with interviews and showed a strong interest in the case from the beginning. Bart Streeter passes a polygraph and is cleared as a suspect. He says he continues to be tormented by the disappearance of his mother and sister. I believe that it actually broke me, that I, I would just sit and cry. And it hurts so bad that you are afraid you'll never be able to quit. But you don't know what to do. Next, police turned their attention to Susie Streeter's past relationships. Susie Streeter had questionable people in her background, and we definitely spent a lot of time investigating the individuals that she was close to. They are particularly interested in Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla, a young man Susie broke up with just a few months prior to her disappearance. The couple split when Dustin was arrested for vandalism at a local cemetery. Police wonder if this crime could be linked to a motive in the disappearance. After driving around one night, Dustin and his friends vandalized a mausoleum, and the following morning, kids found skulls in a tree at a local park. What we found interesting during this portion of the investigation is he was also dating Susie Streeter during this time frame. Days later, a bizarre tip is called in to police. The tip refers to a deal brokered at a local pawn shop where some young men were selling gold teeth fillings. At the time of the gold fillings, of course, we didn't know that it would tie back into the mausoleum. Officers discovered that the gold fillings were removed from skulls taken by the mausoleum vandals. The officer went to the pawn shop, and basically the pawn shop owner had taken the ID of the person pawning it, and it would check to a Mike Clay. Michael Clay, a local teen, is apparently a close friend of Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla. When the officer visits the Clay residence to follow up, he observes some strange items in the house when Clay's sister answers the door. A poster with a large circle, candles, and an animal skull. Clay is not home at the time, but the unusual scene raises a lot of questions about the young man. Which kind of led some to speculate that, you know, there had been some type of maybe a ritual or some type of a cult-type activity had taken place. You're talking about Springfield, Missouri, where it's the heart of the Bible Belt, more or less. And when you start talking about ritualistic activity or some type of satanic activity, no one really wanted to talk about that. And even, even the police didn't want to talk about it. When the officer returns to Clay's house the next day to question him, all of the suspicious paraphernalia is gone. Both Dustin Reckla and Michael Clay are brought to the police station for questioning about the vandalism. Susie Streeter provides police with a statement on her knowledge of the incident. It is testimony that is used to charge the two boys and will be presented in court in September of that year. She was cooperative with the police investigation and provided us with a written statement. She wasn't even aware of what they were going to do until after it had been done. Now, four months later, Susie, along with her friend Stacy and her mom, are missing. 
A week into the investigation, police call Clay and Reckla back to the station to find out if there's a connection between Susie's statement on the vandalism and her disappearance. A news crew in Springfield reports to the community that Michael Clay makes some incriminating statements during his interrogation. And he stated he wished those bitches were dead. And when I heard that, a chill went up my spine. If he was hoping they were dead, did he do it? Why on earth would this young man want them dead? And then for them to be missing, it's never made any sense. He explained later in future interviews of why he made the statement, and he blamed having a disagreement or a personality conflict with the investigator that was questioning during this case. Both Dustin Reckla and Michael Clay deny having anything to do with the disappearance of the three women. The night Susie, Cheryl, and Stacy disappeared, Dustin Reckla says he was at a local band's rock concert and after party. It's not a definite airtight alibi. Michael Clay had a similar alibi that it couldn't be confirmed or denied for that evening. But almost three weeks after the boys plead not guilty in court to institutional vandalism, the women are still missing. At first, I really thought that maybe Michael and some of that group had gotten really angry at Susie and that maybe they held them somewhere and had them until after the court date. And I thought, well, maybe they'll let them go then. Eventually, the boys changed their plea to guilty and are placed on probation. Police say both Michael Clay and Dustin Reckla have cooperated throughout the investigation, but neither can be ruled out as persons of interest. It's early July, 1992, and the three women from Springfield, Missouri have been missing for four weeks. Family members and police are at a loss until a new and frightening piece of information surfaces about the morning of June 6th, the day of their disappearance. A person reported she was on her front porch at 6.30 to 7 o'clock a.m. on Sunday and observed a van turning around. She thought it was Susie Streeter that was driving the van. It's a disturbing story. Even though the sighting takes place in a neighborhood over a mile east of the house on Delmar Street, police believe it's a solid lead. I think very likely Susie was the driver and gone the wrong way from her house and you can't get to the freeway off that street. She said that she looked like she had been crying a lot and that she pulled up in the driveway and she heard a man's voice in the back saying, don't do anything stupid, just back out, turn around and get us out of here. The witness says she did not come forward earlier because she hadn't yet seen the missing persons poster. Once she did, she recognized Susie Streeter as the driver of the van. The witness describes the van in detail to police, and an official search gets underway. The vehicle is identified as a 1964 to 1970 Dodge panel van. The actual witness that reported it described it as a silver to green. She even described it as celery-colored van. Police buy the same model van, paint it green, and park it outside the police station with a sign asking people to contact them with any information. Soon, the calls start flooding in. The paper boy thought he had seen a brown van in the neighborhood, but it was still dark, and he said he really couldn't tell. So they were looking for brown vans for a while. The van in this case has been reported by numerous witnesses as various colors from brown to green to silver to white. It's been pretty much every color there is. Police search thousands of vans, 
they find nothing linked to the three missing women. But police maintain that the sighting should not be discounted. It's like most sightings that you have. It's hard to corroborate or, or fully confirm that that information is correct. However, we give a lot of credibility to the tip. Janice McCall continues pushing the story in the news, hoping to spark more leads. And after a Florida family sees the three missing women's story on TV, it appears her plan has worked. We had a tip on this case from Florida. The tip steers police toward a new suspect named Robert Craig Cox. Robert Cox is a very interesting individual that has a very lengthy criminal history. The person with the tip believes Cox is connected to the disappearance of the Springfield Three. The caller is the brother of a woman named Sharon Zellers, a 19-year-old who in 1978 was the victim of a gruesome crime. Sharon Zellers was a young woman and she worked and had gotten off late. Sharon was abducted and murdered. At the time of Sharon's murder, Robert Craig Cox had just graduated basic training as an army ranger. To celebrate, he took a trip to Florida with his family. Late one night, his mother had to rush him to the hospital when he returned to their motel room covered in blood. He received injuries that evening, the night of the murder, where he had a, a portion of his tongue bitten off. He told investigators he bit his tongue off the nurse said he couldn't have bit his own tongue off because it was bit from someone the other direction. Eventually, Sharon Zeller's body was found just a few hundred feet from Cox's motel room in a nearby sewage facility. Cox was questioned by police, but in the late 70s, DNA evidence wasn't advanced enough to be conclusive, so Cox was not charged. Instead, he traveled to California with the Army, where he was convicted of abducting and assaulting two women in two separate incidents. He is taken into police custody in 1985. While he's in custody in California, they decide to indict him for Sharon Zeller's murder in Florida. They extradite him down. He has a jury trial. He's found guilty and placed on death row. And his sentence was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court because they said they didn't have enough evidence on him. Many of the jurors have been interviewed since then and are all convinced that he is responsible for the murder. Cox was then extradited back to California to finish serving his sentence for the two abductions. But in 1992, Robert Craig Cox is paroled. He goes back to his hometown where his parents still live, Springfield, Missouri. Lacking sophisticated technology, it's difficult for local police departments to keep track of convicted criminals in their area. There wasn't a big list like we have nowadays that people can check on. So the Zellers family keeps tabs themselves on the man they believe is responsible for Sharon's murder. When they discover that Cox was in the area when the three women went missing, they tip off the Springfield Police Department. The police begin to zero in on Robert Craig Cox. Cox works as an underground utilities worker a job which some speculate could be a good con for getting into a stranger's home at 2 a.m. What better ruse in the middle of a night to knock on somebody's door and say, he got a gas problem. You know, he's got the uniform, the truck. But his previous profession intrigues investigators even more. Cox was a mechanic at a used car lot where Stacy McCall's father was also employed as a salesman. We have confirmed that they both worked there at the time. 
my girls were very good and missed their daddy, and they would go up and take his dinner many times. You know, they thought, well, maybe he saw Stacy and was going after her. Could Cox have seen Stacy McCall visiting her dad at work and targeted her? Stacy was the type of young woman that when you saw her, she'd be striking and people would turn to look, you know, because she would make people's head turn. But investigators think the likelihood of a planned abduction is slight, since Stacy and Susie made a last-minute decision to sleep at the house on Delmar Street. On the night of the disappearance, Robert Cox indicated that he attended a golf tournament and spent the night at his parents' residence that evening and then took his girlfriend and her child to church the following morning. We interviewed the girlfriend, and she also indicated that he took her and her child to church the next morning, which would have been Sunday. With Cox's alibi corroborated, police are once again facing a dead end. Still, police do not rule out Cox as a person of interest in this case. I can't think of another case that would come close to this level in the last 20 years that I've worked here. It is very uncommon to have three adult females just totally disappear from a residence. Three years have passed since the three women from Springfield have gone missing, and the police are no closer to answers than they were at the onset of this investigation. In March 1995, a fateful event brings investigators back to a person of interest in the case. Robert Craig Cox, who has since moved to Texas, is arrested for aggravated robbery. When police in Springfield hear about it, they decide to revisit Cox's alibi in the case of the Springfield Three. When they re-interview his former girlfriend, she provides a story very different from her original statement. During this interview, she recanted her previous statement, saying that she had talked to Robert Cox just prior to our interview, and that she had indicated she was with him at church when she really wasn't. Robert Craig Cox could charm anyone, and apparently he had told her that if the police came out, she was to say that basically said she provided the initial story because she felt that he may have been involved in some other crimes. However, she was unaware of the three missing women case or that he was a suspect. Now, without a solid alibi for the morning of June 7, 1992, Robert Craig Cox jumps to the top of a short list of suspects in the case of the Springfield Three. He is almost as bad a nightmare as their disappearance. Springfield police traveled to Texas to interview Cox who is serving a life sentence. But it takes more than one visit to crack him. We made three separate trips to Texas to interview him in the Department of Corrections. Each time, Cox denies any involvement with the three missing women and frustrates the police with cagey answers. He's toyed with the Springfield Police Department and with a lot of us in the media. I think he gets off on toying with all of us. Cox tells police just enough to intrigue them about his knowledge of the case but not enough to incriminate himself. About a year later, still incarcerated in Texas, Cox gives an interview about the three missing women to a Springfield TV reporter. I know that they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. That's not a theory. Yeah, but I know that they're just, I just know that they're dead. I believe that a person who did this had experience knew what they were doing. I believe that the three missing women are buried close to Springfield. 
could either be a combination of just wanting attention or it could be that he actually has some involvement in it. But he obviously enjoys the fact that people were contacting him and spending time looking into him as a possible suspect. Kathy Baird, a crime reporter for the Ozark Sentinel, becomes fascinated with the three missing women when she moves to Springfield in 2000. She's convinced the case can be cracked. I said, there's got to be something somewhere. Somebody knows something. And I picked the case up and started working it. Baird makes a lot of contacts in the community and starts receiving tips of her own. Most assume the women have been murdered and name possible locations of the bodies. Police are skeptical about some of the information. We have a lot of rumors about possible locations of where the three missing women have been buried or their remains are located. Most of it is psychic information that was provided in a dream or a vision from an individual. But Kathy Baird believes one of the sites is mentioned by too many sources too many times to be a coincidence. The South Parking Garage at Cox Hospital. While Cox Hospital and Robert Craig Cox have no connection, it's another bizarre twist in a convoluted case. In 2007, 15 years after Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy go missing, Kathy asks a mechanical engineer named Rick Norland to come to Springfield, Missouri. She explained that, that she was investigating the disappearance of some women. She didn't tell me how many. Norland, who was called to ground zero after 9-11 to help dig out debris, is an expert in ground-penetrating radar, or GPR, which produces underground images. You're able to visualize what's below the surface or hidden. GPR can detect buried objects, changes in the ground's material, and cracks or voids in the soil. But the image GPR projects is not as clear as an actual photograph. So you get an image that you have to interpret. It's going to give you a black and white image, and a lot of times it looks like a bunch of squiggly lines so somebody doesn't know what they're looking at. Kathy and Norland scan one corner of Cox Hospital's South Parking Garage. The resulting images reveal more than anyone expects. And when I got done marking out these perimeters and stood back, there's three anomalies, roughly about the same size. Two were parallel and one was kind of perpendicular to the other two. They were relatively shallow. Radar can't tell that there's a body down there, but this anomaly is very consistent with what we would see in a gravesite location. The only way to confirm if there are bodies buried in this location is to dig for them. But the Springfield Police Department isn't convinced the GPR results are conclusive enough to justify tearing up the concrete. He has credible resources and credible references for his work. Anomaly is a lot different than saying there's three missing people buried below the concrete. Still, regardless of the faith police have in GPR science, there's another problem. The parking garage was built a year after the disappearance of the three missing women. It's, you know, it's well after the fact. People will tell you that, oh, it couldn't be the site because it was still under construction. Yeah, exactly. If it had been completed, there'd be nothing to it. But it wasn't. Let's find out what's underneath that concrete. I want my family found. I am willing to be wrong. Prove me wrong. In December 2010, three years after Rick Norland scans the parking garage, police are reconsidering their position. Chief Williams says that he plans to get all parties involved, the hospital, former and current law enforcement who worked on the case, also the prosecutor's office, get everyone together in the next two weeks 
to try to move forward on this case. If there is a way to, to, uh, to basically put those rumors to rest, uh, uh, then we would look at that. We're still open-minded and we still look into every tip and lead and, and we will continue on this one. If they find remains there, then we're going to have to deal with it. In nearly 19 years since the women disappeared, investigators have logged over 5,000 tips, followed leads in 21 states, and searched the woods throughout the Ozarks to no avail. For the families of the missing women, the lack of closure makes their loss even harder to bear. Janice McCall frequently visits a memorial for the three women to keep her hope alive I take the attitude that my daughter is still alive because they have not found her and they have not found any remains. It's especially painful for Bart Streeter, who never got the chance to reconcile with his mother and sister. Now, I've always believed that we would have worked it out, but we never saw each other again. When Stacy first disappeared, I expected her back that day and then a week, then a month and then a year, and I just recently realized that she's been gone longer than I had her. And for her to be gone more than 18 years is heartbreaking. It's so sad. People have asked me before what I want. I want vengeance. I love my mother and sister. But I'll settle for justice. If there's one-tenth, one-hundredth of one percent of a chance that I can find her, I want that. I want to find her. I want her to know how very much she means to us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 